Shall we begin? Yeah, let's kick off. The following episode of the 9pm probe contains strong language. There's still no theme for this podcast, is there? Oh, well. The probe explores, the probe goes deep, the probe can be uncomfortable sometimes, but the probe might well discover something up there that we haven't seen before. Hello, I'm Still Gerian, and today we're inserting the probe into author John Birmingham, most famous, of course, for the novel He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, which was made into a film, uh, but also the Axis of Time trilogy and a whole bunch of airport novels in that techno-thriller vein, including the Dave vs. the Monsters series, Dave Hooper is the protagonist, uh, and he also does uh, Columns, his own alien side boob, and uh, a couple for Fairfax Media. Well, I've known John for a while, and in June I found myself in his secret writing bunker in Brisbane, where we talked about everything from the end of civilization. That's the open question here at the end of their civilization: is just how dumb is uh, Donald Trump? To the culture wars. The first sort of metatastic flowering of the culture war is directly a result of the Twin Towers going down. And from the mythology of the Anzacs to why JB likes fan fiction. I I like the sort of the lazy payoff of of reading stories in a world that you've created but without having to go to the fucking trouble of writing anything else. I seem to recall too that we mentioned The Burger. That's his blog, Cheeseburger Gothic. Anyway, enjoy this chat. John Birmingham, do you get sick of being the falafel guy? you got to be fucking kidding me. i got so much money for that book. I could be the falafel guy until I died, I reckon. It, really, it honestly does not bother me. Um, I'm, I'm past the point where people are constantly coming up and telling me their flatmate stories. But but even so, I, how I don't mind a flatmate story. Is this? this is... It will become, what was 90, 96? So it's I think. more than 20 years. Yeah, no, that's a long time. 22. Yeah. That sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking at sums, but I think it's about 22 years. Um, it's no longer paying me because um, uh, I, fuck, <laughs> this is a larger story about publishing. It, it was Duffin Snellgrove's little sort of independent startup um, who put that book out and then we went through various uh, methods of distribution over the years. And then Michael Michael Duffy eventually got tired of running a publishing company and um, he uh, he reverted the rights to me. Just before he'd been doing that, he got Pan McMillan to do the um, uh, do the distribution, to actually put the books into the stores. And um, so I thought, oh, look, I'll just sign the rights over to Pan. That's fine because I was publishing with them at that time. <laughs> you know, in the way of things, about four months later on, I wasn't publishing with them, but my f- poor little book is is trapped within the Pan Mac Death Star. So, um, and you know, due to various shenanigans and 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 set twos, um, now nah, I'm not getting paid for it no more. <laughs> this is the same one that that anyone starting out a new band gets to. It's like, oh wow, we've got a contract. Yeah, we've got the contract with the big label, and they suddenly find that. Until they've paid the quarter of a million dollars for that video clip, yeah. they don't get a cent. No, that's right. It, um, yeah, it was, it was it was akin to that, uh, but with um, a, a few sort of diabolical tweaks and, and twists. But anyway, yeah, so at, at, at some point that book will revert to me. I think um, 2020, I get the rights back to that, and I'll probably, I'll probably do a print run myself. 
I'm going to come back to talking about self-publishing because that's a that's a big thing for you now. I'm actually going to spring on you A Time for War, 2005, mm. your quarterly essay, which I'm halfway through rereading at the moment. The subtitle uh, is about Australia as a, a military power and how mm. that's changed uh, since the end of the Vietnam War, where we, we both hated the war and hated the soldiers, and the returned soldiers were spat upon and mm. publicly ridiculed. Then the Afghanistan war, and to a lesser extent Iraq, but where the the war was hated and the politicians were hated, but the military was still respected. The men and women who did the hard yards were still respected. Yeah. Are we are we still there? I mean, that's that's again, it's thirteen years ago. Oh, look, probably even deeper into the into the jungle than that. It's um, there's been a really weird cultural metamorphosis over the past. 15, 20 years or so, and it would be very easy to, to sort of hand wave it down to, um, you know, John Howard uh, and, and post 9-11. Um, paranoia? No, not even paranoia, just, you know, glorification of the, the Anzac legend. But if you go back, I think it was actually Paul Keating who, who kicked off the whole sort of, um, you know, Anzac franchise or the modern Anzac franchise. Um and I mean, he was a believer in his own way. His his personal obsession was the um, uh, the war in New Guinea not getting the respect it deserved, mm. and so he he started, I think, the the process of it's not even reclaiming um, sort of Anzac mythology for for modern times. Um, it, it actually just it basically remythologizing the Anzacs. Uh, and of course, that then obviously there was a, a much more powerful cultural impetus driving that after September 11, and it's 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 interesting. It's it's probably worth going back and doing another quarterly essay because, as you say, it was 2005 when I, I wrote mm. that last one, and we weren't. I don't know that we were that far into the sort of you know never-ending war that the ADF has been involved in since then. I guess we were. So two thousand and end of two thousand and one, they get ready to go off to Afghanistan. Get pulled out of there, what, two thousand two, two thousand three sent off no, they get sent oh, off sorry, to Afghanistan Iraq. First. Yeah. They they wind Afghanistan yeah. down. Um, and in fact, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this off the cuff, so I haven't done any deep thought on this at all. But that's if you all right. Look at, I'll, I'll go the little bleep, and what he really meant to say <laughs> was 2007. No, no, I'm, yeah. I, I think I got my dates right. What I'm, what I'm thinking about though is, is the way that they, they charged into Afghanistan, which you know was entirely uh, justifiable in both the sort of you know moral and, and geo strategic sense, um, but then having knocked over that regime and completely failed to grab a hold of the blokes that they were after when they, they went in there, they just turned around and walked back out. Like they'd completely wound down the, um, the effort in Afghanistan because they wanted to then go off to, uh, to Iraq. And if you look at like the absolute clusterfuck of, of Iraq, you can see them having a dry run for it in Afghanistan. Cause you know, they go in, they have a thing that they want to do, they don't achieve it, oh, well, fuck it, we'll just piss off. And, you know, exactly the same in Iraq, but on a much grander scale. Isn't that what you should do if your military operation is fucking up? I mean, you go in, you have an objective, it's turning into a clusterfuck. 
you count your losses and piss off out of it, isn't that? Well, what... I, I guess it comes down to what was the what, what was, was the objective, the in, objective in Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, it Peace was... and democracy, John. Peace no, and it democracy. actually it wasn't. It's I mean they were a lot more honest in Afghanistan. Um, they had a bunch of guys who had committed a, an act or you know opened a, a sort of an asymmetric war, mm. um, and they were basically going to war with them and. Uh, you know, morally, as I said, geostrategically, I don't have a lot of issues with that. Um, but they, <laughs> having gone in, they didn't actually lay hands on them for you know, another 10 years or so. And it was mm. actually a different administration in the US that, that finally got Bin Laden. And, of course, by the time they, they got a hold of him, um, they'd fucked up royally in Iraq. And the entire uh, sort of Islamist project had metastasized all over the, the world by then. I was thinking about this in the car the other day. As I said, I'm, I'm working off the cuff. I haven't given a lot of deep thought, but in some ways you could say that, you know, Bin Laden won. He got what he wanted, which was to kick the legs out from underneath us. If you look at how much weaker we are now, how much more divided against ourselves and how we, you know, we, we look to our like to ourselves how we look how we turned on ourselves since um september 11 uh you know he got a bullet in the brain but he got what he wanted which was well we pay attention to the islamist project as you just called it mm. and we're constantly looking over our shoulder in but, fear but of the everything islamist now project. absolutely everything now and I don't think this is an exaggeration oh, I can't, look, honestly it is a fucking exaggeration but it feels like everything now <laughs> gets recast in terms of a sort of grand war narrative. So, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you don't agree with cutting penalty rates on Sunday, then, you know, by one, two, three, four steps, you're letting the terrorists win. Uh, Everything gets recast in in terms of these, like, war narratives. And it's, you know, it's all sold to us as culture war now, but the roots of the culture war lie in the different response of left and right within the West to how best to handle September 11. So, you know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of debate after the, uh, the September 11 atrocity that, you know, as awful as it was, it actually wasn't an act of war because it wasn't, you know, um, Despite the, the the support of the you know Afghani state for Al Qaeda to launch that operation, it wasn't the Afghani state that. that what you're saying it. effectively is that it, it was a criminal operation it was a, on a very large yeah, scale. It was it was a James Bond it style supervillain. Hmm. I mean, if, if you sort of if you make um, that that the sort of you know ragbag bunch of wankers who were running. Al-Qaeda at that time, if you make them a lot cooler and, you know, maybe gave them a martini and an eye patch, they'd be Bond villains, you know. You know, we, we, we plan to explode a bomb, basically, in New York that will destroy a, a massive part of the city and, and bring down these towers and kill, they were hoping, for tens of thousands. It's a very Bond villain plot. You don't react to Bond villains by going to war. You, you send Bond. And so there was an argument um, to be made that the... the correct response to September 11 was, um, you know, a sort of legal, political, diplomatic espionage um, uh, response with, you know, maybe some military backing. And then, you know, the flip side of that was, no, no, it's war. And we, we got ourselves so fucked up over our different... 
approaches to that response that in the end um, we've torn ourselves apart. So you know everything is now everything is now about the fucking culture war and the war, the roots of the culture war. Or sorry, that's not true. The roots of the culture war go further back. But the 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 first sort of metatastic flowering of the culture war is directly a result of the twin towers going down. And yet there was a kind of bond villainization of Osama bin Laden at the time. Remember all of the underground bunkers? There, mm. were, there were apparently these miles and miles of of almost Nazi Germany-style underground fortresses. Mm. When in fact there were, okay, there were defended caves and all sorts of things, but it certainly wasn't the underground villains they lair. Were, they, weren't, they weren't sophisticated villains. Um, you know, when, when they... <laughs> whenever you get information released from something like the, the raid that killed bin Laden, the, the information is being released for a purpose. Oh, yeah. And so there was a purpose that they release the information that his computers were full of porn. And it's just, mm. yeah, it's to make him look a bit pathetic. His, but, you know, his computer's probably... His computer <laughs> isn't full of porn. Exactly right. Um, but, yeah, I just... I, I was contemplating this the other day. Like, you know, he... He probably wishes he wasn't wasn't shot in the head. Um, he was probably he probably, <laughs> I, I, he'd probably prefer thank you, thank you for that deep to and, just deep be in his compound, inside. ripping the top off one, you know, checking out a little bit of Pornhub. But can, can Bin Laden could probably be satisfied not, with his work. Osama Bin Laden does not strike me as a beer drinker, but <laughs> <laughs> but I get the point you're making. Mm. That was a very successful operation. Yeah. Well, it, um, it was, and it's you know in this. Well, well, look at what he's done. If you sort of if you step everything back and then look at the long arc from there to here, yeah, you know, you've now got an American president who is just completely trashing like fifty, sixty years of of Western alliances. Like he's he's as vexing and potentially dangerous to. America's long-term allies as he is to, you know, well, what used to be considered its, um, its, its rivals, if not its, its outright enemies. And again, like, you know... And you it's can- not just because the man himself, as an individual, is a moral. Is it? No, it's it's, it's I mean, that, that, that's the open it's his- that's the open question here at the end of our civilization is just how dumb is. Uh, Donald Trump, and you know, in some ways he looks like a, a dotty old racist, uh, and in other ways, you know, he looks really smart. Like, you know, when he does things, he like this stuff with Giuliani going on now, uh, talking about, uh, you know, well, if, if if the president doesn't, if the president does it, it, it literally cannot be uh, illegal. I, mean, I, that, need to, I need to pause and say we're recording this on Monday, the fourth of June, twenty eighteen. All of this could be completely different in the next six hours. Yeah, it could be. But I think what you're going to find over the next week, week and a half, like he's, given the context of where we are, mm-hmm. um, Giuliani's just gone on the Sunday shows and he's yeah. just basically thrown this out there as a line. You know, what do you reckon? You know, just be because I think his line, his, his, his legal reasoning is that um, because he can do whatever he wants in terms of opening and closing um, Justice Department investigations and because he can pardon anybody he wants, including himself, if he wants, there's no way that he can obstruct justice because it can't be a crime 
because he can just say it's not a crime. I mean, it's 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 fairy tale fucking reasoning. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the guy's a, a, a grotesque money laundering orange criminal, but. Um, you know. But what can you do? Yeah. Well, that that well that yeah. is that is their whole line of argument. What, yeah. what are you going to do about it? That's it. That that's the. I mean, yeah, that's the, the frightening thought, isn't it? That that the United States is in many ways an elected dictatorship for in four year slabs. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm going to say this now. I called this. I called that Trump was going to win a good year before the election date. I am already on record as saying uh, four more years. Yeah, are you? You think he'll go yeah. four more years? That's that's. I mean, he certainly could, um, and he's got that. He's got that solid core of support that doesn't look like it's ever going to go away. Well, Trump um, solved everything. More jobs. Uh, he's dealt with the immigrants. He's made America great again. Uh, yeah, look for thirty percent of he's people. He stood up to King Kim Jong Un. I thought you were going to say King George the Third then, but. <laughs> Next next week. Well, next week might as well. Why not? Yeah. Look, I we, I think I remember reading something Michael Moore wrote during the campaign, and Moore, of course, was like you saying, "Yeah, he'll get up." And I remember reading okay. it. And, oh, fuck you! Yeah. That is the worst sledge I've yeah, received so, in a long time mate, that you, I've said something that Michael Moore and I agree. You get in the hot tub with him, and people will draw conclusions. Moving right along. <laughs> That's that's a really disturbing image. <laughs> Not four more years. Oh look, you know anything, anything's say, possible yeah. in a two horse race. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think uh, not, um, just because selfishly, you know, I quite liked living under the American hegemony as a sort of you know wealthy middle class white male. It worked very well for me. Um, but it seems to be you know, rapidly collapsing, and he's the one yeah. kicking the supports out from underneath it at the moment. Which brings us uh, almost inevitably to the South China Sea, or as I referred to it and then got abused by Chinese trolls as the West Philippine Sea. Don't, mm. Just pro tip, don't do that. You'll get death threats. All right. Uh, I mean, from random bullshit bot accounts on Twitter, but yeah. they don't like you calling it the West Philippine Sea. Yeah, and I used to get a lot of that at Fairfax, and we still used to do comments at Fairfax. If I if I wrote something about China that um, you know didn't didn't, did, didn't cleave to the party line, you, you'd get like hundreds of "what for you hate China" comments coming uh, in within the the next six or seven hours. How's that? That's hotting up. Are we paying enough attention to China? Uh, sorry, you are. I, I I now seem to be turning you into the guru of foreign policy advice, but fuck it, you wrote books that have warships yeah, in them, so I you know. So. Um, you know, uh, as look, you, you say, know, you get in the hot tub. I, I don't think I don't think the punters are paying much attention to it, and quite frankly, there's no reason for them to. There are people who get paid pretty well to think about this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're spending a lot of time thinking about it. Um, so you know, the, the people within. Yeah, the, the full-time professionals within the national security complex are doing what they can to ignore what's happening in the White House. And the deep state, basically, is... Mm-hmm. The deep state's got your back, don't worry. They're, they're all over this South China Sea, West Philippines, Lake business. And um, they, yeah, you know, they're, they're a bit worried about it. Um, there's a lot happening there. But, I mean... China, China's working very, very hard to change the reality, you know, on the atoll over there. Like they've they've 
built those bases up. They've put a bunch of bombers on them now and missiles. And in, in, in the world of real politics, if you can claim the ground and no one else can take it from you, that's your ground. You own it now. It is. And despite, I don't know, the claim that we can perhaps ignore the circus of the White House, if the circus of the White House is busy juggling the wrong kind of balls, I'm having trouble with the metaphor here. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're not really paying attention to this shit in, in the terms that maybe one should. I oh, mean, I it's think, all about trade yeah. war. It's all about... I don't even know that they're... Hello, maybe, maybe it's okay for ZTE to sell into the United States after all, and good heavens, Melania's oh, trademark. Yeah, but just he, just, got he flips approved. and flops every 24 hours. I don't think... Well, you We talk about the White House. I don't think that that entity that we refer to as the White House is paying attention to anything other than... You know, the inevitable money laundering charges that are, you know, heading towards us sometime in the next six months. Because I don't know whether you saw it. There was a great piece in Wired um, just recently. <laughs> I, I tweeted it this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that headline. Yeah. Um, I, I I will insert the headline here if it's, if it's materially different. But it was mm. essentially what it was saying, paraphrased, is we're not saying that Donald Trump launders money, but here's how he's doing it. Yeah, if he was laundering money, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this is yeah. how he'd do it. And I've just realised, actually, now the form of those words, they've taken it from um, that bloody A.J. Simpson uh, oh. doco, yeah. You know, if yes. I, you know, I didn't murder her, but if I did, this is how I would have done it. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, look, it's... Um, yeah, but it, it, it's one of half a dozen things that could just spin completely out of control anywhere in the world at the moment. Um, maybe it'll be that. Maybe it'll be Korea. Maybe it'll be something in the Middle East. Maybe it will be, you know, an aerosolized Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo that just gets completely out of hand because CDC is no longer funded or interested to do this kind of work anymore. It, there's so much going on. Yeah, that's on. a happy thought. Yeah. Uh, there's... The the US used to be like you know the the lead in the saddlebags, the thing that, that kept everything. And this actually this was the whole premise behind the um, the without warning novels. You know what mm. would happen if you actually took them away? Um, well, this is, it, this is again what led you to be at the event with me with the lizard people talking yeah. about what happens. Yeah, that's right. If America drops the ball and they're dropping the ball. Yeah, well, it's just yeah. I mean, Trump has spiked the ball. He's thrown it at the ground and he's having a little tantrum and um you know they're you know they've one of the things that he he wanted to do was withdraw them from a lot of uh international commitments like you know things like paris accord and you know he's 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 very obviously wants to roll up nafta and get out of that and um he's i mean in some senses what he's doing is not radical he's just returning to a sort of pre-globalized u.s um position of isolation where you know their their domestic market was so vast even in those days that they really could um throw up the gates or you know the wall or whatever and you know live quite well within their own means um you know that was that was a long time ago though but that's now that you put it like that that's exactly what the disenfranchised middle-aged white voters in the south who have lost their jobs at the plant etc uh, etc et feel has happened america is no longer great because it no longer makes things and sells things to itself uh and they're all buying toyotas anyway but mm. um that's really i think what they're after they want to return to the 
as they perceived the comfort of when they were younger. And Trump has just you know, promised to take them there, yeah, without but, any detail or but it's a complete, strategy. It's a lie. He can't. You, you can never go home again. Um, you know, all you know the. You know those those massive widescreen TVs that they've all got in their like you know trailers. trailers. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could build that in Texas um, using you know parts and labor sourced only from the US, but it's going to cost you fifteen thousand dollars, and then you can't afford to have it in your trailer anymore. Um, you know, you can't. You can build an iPhone in Amarillo, but you've got to pay nine thousand dollars for it. It's uh, that genie's out of the bottle. It's it's not going back in um, because the the people who would it's really it's it's almost an insoluble problem. Um, it's you know the people who would suffer the most are the people who are suffering the most. And I, I recall uh, back in the eighties when we were having these debates here about restructuring um, and basically letting a bunch of old industries die and hopefully some new ones would come along and replace them. I remember Don Watson and. Paul Keating, um, between them coming up with some formulation that the, the problem of restructuring was what to do with dumb white males. Because mm. dumb white males had had it pretty good under the sort of, you know, post-war settlement. And they couldn't have it good anymore because that model no longer worked. So what are you going to do with them? Um, and, you know, in a sense, we were lucky at that point that it was Hawke and Keating in charge uh, and not Hewson or... Or even Howard, because they they spent an awful lot of public capital and invested an awful lot of energy in you know what probably at the time looked like make busy programs or make work programs, um, you know which they fashioned as retraining and you know reeducation. Oh, that doesn't sound right. Um, but uh, what they were basically doing was you know saying to a whole generation of. Uh, blue collar workers who you know were probably 80 90 percent uh white males and probably 70 percent you know uh european white males if 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 not anglo uh look it's just going to be hard for some of you some of you're going to lose your jobs but we will you know we will look after you and we will do what we can to make sure at some point you get another job and it won't be the job you had it won't be anything like the job you had but it'll be a good job and you'll be able to pay your bills and you know that's what that's what your average punter wants in the end is um, the freedom from the economic anxiety that comes when you, you know, look at your bloody bank balance and it's in the red and you've got a stack of bills you can't pay. And, it's, you know, that, that kind of anxiety just eats away at people's self-esteem and it, it gnaws all the way down to the soul in the end and you know it's 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 a painful and and destructive process that eventually gives rise to you know cheeto dusted demons like donald fucking trump so how does this then unfold when we replace even the jobs those folks can do with robots i don't know honestly don't know like i i, I and i have i got a dog in this fight because i got a couple of uh, kids uh, who are in, you know, my daughter's in her late teens and my, my, my son will be getting there within a year or two. And, you know, I, I do sort of wonder, what are they going to do for a quid 30 or 40 years from now? Um, because an awful lot of the jobs that you might think of as, you know, not being amenable to take over by, by robots or um or software actually are amenable to being taken over mm. by robots and software. Uh, like even the shit I do, like 
airport novels. Not now, maybe not 10 years from now, 20 years from now, for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah absolutely, yeah. Just, it, yeah, that, that's a coming too, so... You know, well, robots write news, right? I used to do a lot of cricket writing, um, and I was pretty good. I wasn't as good as Gideon Hay, because he's fucking awesome, but I was pretty good. Um, but one of the things that, that I realised early on is that most, uh, you know, uh, reporting of a sport like cricket is so fucking formulaic that you could program a sophisticated, um, you know, machine intelligence yeah. to do it so you know any any time you know the, the sheffield shield match started in queensland in november you know you you can write the opening paragraph now you know it was a queensland struggled under leaden skies at the gabba on the first day of the match against new south wales openers blah 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 were dismissed for blah 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 you know the, this bowler was swinging a blah 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 and it's just this it, it's not as crude as a bunch of stock phrases that you just sort of slot into place, but um, it could. I'm, I'm pretty sure now that quite a few sports reports are done by that. It's just. Oh, I can tell you for a fact it is. Yeah. And one of the leading companies is called Automated Insights. Mm. And uh, college level US sports, uh, weekend real estate prices. Yep. Uh, top seller this weekend was $1.4 million in whatever. The median house sold this weekend was X and well, it was up Y percentage points. Yeah, if I go to my kitchen now and ask Alexa, what's the weather? She'll tell me. Hmm. I'm guessing no one wrote that copy. It's happening now. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, the CEO of, of uh, Automated Insights actually is on record as saying, in the old days, it was you had one story and it was read by two million people. Mm. This idea now is that eventually it'll be two million stories, each read by one person, yeah. because it'll be tailored to their needs. Yeah. This is a thing now. Yeah, it's... Um There's a bit of a jump from that to airport novels. Yeah, look, yeah, there is. Um, but... I don't know. I mean, I can see a, I can see a day where the the, the software is capable of doing it. However, um, you know, there there might be an unexpected uh, outcome there where something as bespoke as a hand tooled novel actually becomes more valuable because it was you know done by a human. The, the same way that you know, craft everything is mm. is now a thing um i, I can imagine that the craft writing like hand hand tool stories just for you is um well you know in a sense that's what i I've, seen, I've seen a busker once he'll sell you a poem for five dollars yep. he has them pre-written he's only got the one copy of it yep you give him five bucks he'll hand you a piece of paper with a poem written on yeah. it. yeah you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage doing it it's um, not going to scale or, or at possibly all. yeah possibly even feed yourself but um <laughs> Like I, Have honest, poets ever been able to feed themselves? Nah, well, no. that's yeah, that's right. Um, I, I honestly don't know what my kids will do for a crust thirty years from now. Uh, it's. I would. You would know, your parents have believed what you're doing for for a crust thirty years uh, ago? I was very lucky. Um, that both my parents, my parents were, you know, English working class. Dad worked in a factory, and uh, and, and Mum worked the desk at a um, a doctor's surgery. And neither of them got past grade ten because in those days, you know, the kids are working people didn't. You know, they went out and got a job immediately and started kicking into the family budget. Um, but I was very very lucky in the you know the the, the gene pool from which I emerged because they they never once. Um, 
second guess me about my choices and you know those choices must have looked pretty bogus you know as I was getting towards my late 20s and you know not holding down a job I, I was working in inverted commas as a freelancer but what that meant was that I was just grubbing around from job to job and, and maybe topping out at about yeah, you know, the equivalent of 10 or 12 grand a year now and you know moving from you know from one brown couch to another and, and living the falafel lifestyle but um you know to my my parents uh credit and, and my everlasting gratitude they never never once gave me any grief about it they just had faith that i'd make it work and um yeah, luckily I did. Uh, but then, you know, I, I got a lot of mates, uh, really, really good writers and, you know, selling chocolate at the markets on the weekend because they can't pay the bills with their writing. But that, I guess, that has been the way it's always been. It is indeed. So, you know, you, 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 you want to talk about self-publishing, though. Yeah, you know, I, I do want to talk about that. Uh, 2015, you dumped your publisher, effectively. For your airport. Uh, no, no, we, 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 we dropped each other. <laughs> we, we pretty much dropped each other. Although, I I, I I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I don't think they'd talk to you. Um, I <laughs> commercially confidence. Oh, look, it was it was just look, you were you were unhappy with the way the timing rolled out between publishing here and publishing in the US and Europe. That's that's yeah, how well, it is told look, on, on the yeah, no, Wikipedia, no. which is the ultimate source of all truth. I haven't looked at my Wikipedia page in years, but I, I probably should check it. Uh, um, first line, John Birmingham, born and a date, is a British-born left-wing Australian author known left-wing. for his 1994 memoir, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, and his Axis of Time trilogy. I'm going to so go edit that. You, I actually don't consider myself left-wing at all. Not at all. It's, I'm just, I'm really not. I used to know a lot of campus socialists. They used to shit me to tears. But, um, well, know, one I, great I, theory I, is places like Resistance and those, those sort of student socialist ones. My strong belief is they're all actually run by ASIO to, well, as, as a make-work scheme yeah, to keep yeah. the kids out of trouble, you'd right? have been, you'd to have stop been them right. doing real left-wing. You would have been right in the 60s. Uh, there was one point in the 40s where I think... Like you know, I, I don't know what the numbers were, but if say there were there were a hundred members of the Australian Communist Party um, in 1944, I, I think 70 or 80 of them were actually paid ASIO agents. I, I can I can actually say from uh, well, I was about to say personal knowledge, personal knowledge from someone who said who was in the uh, Australian Communist Party in the 60s. Uh, he eventually got a hold of his ASIO file to discover that yes, about. Thirty percent of the mm. people at their core meetings were, in fact, ASIO agents. We're informing, yeah, that's right. I'm not sure what it says about uh, you know the, uh, the the basically the breakdown in the relationship between me and and Pan Mac after Hooper, but you know, in the end, there's nothing that interesting about it. It was just a business relationship that went wrong. Um, I I was contracted to write a series of books. I wrote them. I really like those books. I actually think they're the best books I've ever written, um, just from a technical standpoint. They're, they're okay. the most sophisticated. Um, they're not the most popular. That that remains... I, I guess it has to be falafel because it's just sold so many fucking copies. But uh, in, 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 in that was like a, a unicorn. You know, it was an impossible beast that shouldn't have happened. If you put that to one side, then the, the World War novels... Are massively popular and mm. remain so. I, I still get um, royalties from uh, the US for them. 
And, and, and I'll know, say quietly, I kind of personally prefer them to the Dave Hooper books, but then uh, Dave Hooper's a bit of a cunt. Yeah, he is. Um, that, that, and, that's the whole fucking point. Well, I know that's the whole fucking point, but I don't, I don't want him there uh, in bed with me at 10 o'clock when no, I'm relaxing, no, so to enough, speak. Fair yeah. enough, fair um, enough. But... It's, you know, those... At least it's not like the bloody Thomas Covenant stories, where uh, that matters. Yeah. I, I read those as uh, probably a teenager, and, I Yeah, think. as one and did. I, I think my mum had picked them up. And, you know, I, sh- I should actually say what we're yeah. talking about. The books by, insert here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen Donaldson. Stephen um, Donaldson. Uh, yeah, I mean... Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Yeah, you went and racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You went into a bookstore in the 1970s, and and that was what you got. You got your your Covenant books, and a couple of years later on, I think the Julian May books to try and grab that audience as well. And then it was all like you know Stephen King or um, who wrote the the Travis McGee uh, crime novels. Ah, no, John D. Macdonald. Um, It was like then as now, there was half a dozen authors selling 70 percent of the books. but, it's like George R. R. Martin now, pretty yeah. much. But you, yeah, in, in some ways, I, I seem oh, maybe this is, maybe I'm misremembering, but I seem to recall the misremembering just, things misremembering. that happened in the '70s. I just there just weren't that many books around, and they were all the same books, and most of them were fucking Stephen Donaldson's, you know, Thomas <laughs> Covenant. Um, and then sometime and in the '80s, hot boilers, they just plod along. Oh, uh, they're terrible. It's, uh, it's, I, I went back and. He wrote like he, he tried to do a bunch of sci-fi books, which had an interesting premise, um, but I, I, I sort of don't recall them as being very good. Uh, and he eventually got dragged back to doing more Donaldson novels again, and I, I ended up picking up the fourth Thomas Com- Covenant novel, like you know, for a buck in a second-hand store. And for the sake of nostalgia, I thought I'll read this, and I ended up reading the whole thing. I forced myself to read the whole thing through because I, I just began to think, I just, I cannot believe this is so fucking awful. Um, and it was, and I, I just kept reading to see if it got better or got worse, and mostly got worse. And uh, I think he's done a few more, but I haven't, I haven't gone back to them. I don't know how we got onto that useless cunt, but um, oh, it was because Dave Hoover's had come. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 thank you. But, okay, no, look, look, I I get it. They're they're great books. I just happen not to like him. But as you say, that is the entire point. Well, he's, and as he's a narrator, (laughs) it makes it a bit difficult. (laughs) Um, But, again, with Dave, like, the fans of Dave, oh, my God, there are some serious fucking fans of Dave. Like, I get, you know. But there's fanfic out there now that you've published, if I remember correctly. There is. Yeah. In fact, that's right. Um, people write a bunch of Dave stories or stories set in the Dave uh, universe. And I, I, I like fanfic. I like the idea of fanfic. And I just, I, I like the sort of the lazy payoff of, of reading stories in a world that you've created, but without having to go to the fucking trouble of writing anything else. Um, I encourage and enjoy fanfic in my story worlds. It's, uh, it's good fun. Well, I think that's the the thing about creating a rich world. In in the like the world building mm. that you do is quite sophisticated. Uh, yes, if I yes, may it say is. That. Yes. You, you come no. nod. I'm giving you a compliment here. You yep. spend a lot of time on the world building. You you have your own fan base that helps you with that. Mm. With a lot of the the fine detail about what a particular weapon sounds like mm. or or whatever, leaving you to write the the plot, the characters, yeah, yeah. and the blood I- and gore. Yeah, I, I remember doing a blog post um, at the Burger many years ago now. It must be 10 years ago. But it was, I was in the middle of doing the Without Warning trilogy. Um, 
And I had this scene where Caitlin, my, you know, sexy assassin is, uh, she's gone to her safe house and she's taken a bag out from under the floorboards. Ah, uh, yes. There's a bunch of stuff in it. And I just, I just put on my blog, you know, what, what's in the bag, Caitlin? And I, was, I think it was like 187 replies later on. I, I had the perfect fit out. Uh, and I, I, that's the thing I, I, I do love about the sort of the modern, um, the modern way that you, you can be and you really should be available to your readers somewhere other than, you know, between the pages of the book. It was good fun. You write incredibly prolifically. You did send us all an email the other day that you're doing, what, five books this year. Mm. Yeah, you're but- still doing it. Two columns a week for... Oh, hello, is this the, this is the secret whiteboard, yeah. mate. Yeah, there it is. Can I read that out? Um, yeah, sure. World War 3.1? Yeah, that's under construction right now. So that's obviously the next trilogy yep. in that series. Debt Collector. Yep. That's a, a quite conventional but, you know, quite fun thriller that I'm planning on doing later on this year. EOW? End of the World on Patreon. Aha. Uh-huh. Which I haven't dug into yet, mm. but I'll have a look. Sleeper Agent? Uh, another... Actually, this is... Um, I think of this as my Caitlin Munro spin-off. It's, it's really not, but I love sleeping assassin stories. Okay. You know, you know Jason Bourne is, is the archetypal sleeping assassin, but there was another one, um, Long Kiss Goodnight is a great sleeping assassin ah. story. Uh, a less well-done one was... Um, what was it? Uh, Oh, it's on Netflix at the moment, starring the guy who was in uh, Social Network, Jesse Eisenberg. Is that him? Uh, American, American, American something or other. Why don't I say American Psycho? Anyway, it's, it's another sleeping mm-hmm. assassin story. It's, it's a genre, and I love them. So I'm going to do my own sleeping assassin story, which uh, up there is called Sleeper Agent, and probably will end up being called Sleeper Agent when I... We've got Strongholders written there. Another Dave book. Of course. Jarvan War. Ah, this is a prequel to a book that um, I have sent off to Random House, but haven't had my edits back yet, called The Cruel Stars. Um, That's a nice conventional uh, space opera, basically. Oh, okay. Um, And I've... um, I've written Cruel Stars. My, it's been, you know, it's gone through my beta edits. Uh, now it's gone. It's just sitting in someone's desk over in New York, I guess, waiting for them to, you know, find an intern <laughs> to, to read it. But Jarvan War is a prequel to that book that I'm going to do. I'll offer it to random because politically I have to, since they're buying the original IP, they should have, you know, first refusal. I'm really hoping they don't pick it up. Um, I'm doing it with uh, Jason Lambright, who's uh, another writer that I know, whose work I really like. And um, I've just, you know, I really like the characters in The Cruel Stars, and two of them in particular I thought could do with uh, better origin, like, sorry, um, larger origin stories. So that's what Jarvan War is. It's a collab. I thought it might be something connected with your uh, interest in the past, with the wonderful world of. Indonesia and East Timor, no. which you've set, obviously, the World War 2.1 starts off in that part of the world. That's right. Um, and you wrote back, got 2001, 17 years ago, you wrote the quarterly yeah. essay about Jakarta, Australia, yeah. complicit in East Timor. We still don't know much more about what happened there, except a few months ago, some US stuff 
uh, cables were declassified, which says the US Embassy in Jakarta was well aware that a million yeah. people were being I don't think- murdered. And we did kind of surprising no one, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever get anything out of uh, Australian sources, anything more out of Australian sources, unless, you know, some old spy has like, left a box of documents under his bed and it sort of, um, you know, pops out some point in the future. But the, the, US, uh, the US is pretty good at releasing information, um, particularly information that, you know, would be embarrassing to, uh, to Canberra. It just, you know, it just it leaks out and... Or it actually doesn't even leak out. It just it comes out because they're just much more open. I honestly think it's a difference between a monarchy and, and a republic. Like, you know, um, despite all the flaws of the US, it is a republic. It is a government of the people, whereas we are subjects of the crown. And, mm. You know, our job is to do as we are fucking told. And I think that makes a big difference. Speaking of uh, doing as we are fucking told, the Joe Bielke-Peterson days and uh, at least one arrest of you. Mm. Yeah, this is actually on your Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's, that's so all right. Yeah. You, you were one of, if not the last person to be arrested under the illegal assembly laws in the uh, Joe Bielke-Peterson I was, I was definitely one of them. There's a few mm. more after me. Um, I think... For anyone under the age of about... 35, they'd mm. have no idea what we're talking about no, just now. they wouldn't. Youngsters. Joe Bielke Peterson was the Premier of Queensland. He and many members of his government were found by the Fitzgerald Royal Commission to be well, corrupt. In fact, Joe was not found to be corrupt. No, Joe wasn't. Um, he was, and I actually don't think he was corrupt. I, I think he just enjoyed being a hillbilly dictator way too much. Um, but I don't know that he actually trousered any quids for himself, whereas the, the people around him were just, you know, grotesque fucking urges and crims and, and you know, just terrible fucking I mean, bandits, I mean, really. what proportion of Yorkie Peterson's cabinet ended up in jail at the end of that? It was about Quite a, a few. third of them, yeah. Quite a few of them. Um, and, you know, well-deserved, too. So there were draconian anti-assembly laws? Yeah, like, it was just... Uh, it was a sort of soft dictatorship. Um, you, you, unless you were really unlucky and you ran afoul of the business interests of a particular bunch of corrupt cops, you probably weren't going to get killed. Um, <laughs> That's reassuring, yeah. Uh, but you could, you know, they'd destroy your life if, you, if they, you know, you gave them any trouble. So there was a lot of environmental activists and unionists and, and you know, uh, uh, pro-democracy supporters and who basically had to leave the state because um, they used... Uh, you know, defamation writs and and criminal charges as a weapon to basically get rid of anybody that was proving to be difficult. And when I say get rid of them, I mean, literally just make, just push them over the fucking border down the Tweed River. And once they're south, we don't care because they're not causing trouble up here. Queensland is always like, it's it's a separate place from the rest of Australia. It's the deep north, Mm. as you might say, to flip over the American term. It's always seen as itself as something special. Uh, but you, you were arrested, according, as I say, to Wikipedia, the ultimate source of all truth and knowledge. You were holding a single sheet of paper with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, free speech. Free speech, with yep. the two words written on it in very small type. Yep. Free speech. Yep. And you were arrested. Yep, it wasn't even in Comic Sans, but uh, <sighs> I was arrested. Um, I was charged. I got four charges out of that. So I got a uh, display placard, illegal assembly, speaking without a permit, something else. I took the legal aid solicitor who was there, or duty solicitor, whoever it was, and I didn't say anything when I got into court. I just let this guy do all the talking. 
uh, I don't even know what he said, but um, there was, I was convicted, but I wasn't fined. Um, so, and then I ended up writing a story about it, which I think I got about 1500 bucks for. So it was a very profitable arrest for me. Um, but a, a lot of the other, uh, <laughs> a lot of the other crazies I was arrested with that night, including one guy fucking pulled a knife in the paddy wagon and started carving up the roof of the, the wagon. He's, and he's going, he's going to me, you know, oh, you fucking get the coppers in here and I'll cut them, I'll cut them, mate. You just get them in. Going, yeah, see, that's a strat- right. yeah, that's a strategy full of win, right? Yep. Right there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, Last I saw of him, he was disappearing under a threshing machine of police batons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm shocked. And I did not raise a hand in his defence. Uh, yes, you don't have to be a hero every time. We could, we, I know we could wrap it on here for basically forever, but I do want to talk about two of your books, which I do quite love. I'm sounding like a fanboy. I'm not a fanboy. You're an asshole, really. But, you, know, <laughs> you, you do the occasional decent book and column. I should ask you about Alien Side Boob at the end too, but Dope Land. Your, yeah. your tour of Australian yeah. marijuana culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I know for a fact that that was very well researched because when you describe Adelaide and your visit to Adelaide, I can certainly... You've been very nice and you've changed all the names to protect the guilty. But, yeah, I know exactly who you, who yeah. you were and who you spoke to and I think that really is good. You did capture yeah, what be, was happening there. I had a good time in Adelaide. How, how, yeah, <laughs> as one did in that period. How the hell do you get paid to go around... Smoking dope. That was my reward from Random House, God bless them. Um, I'd done like four and a half years on Leviathan. I was just exhausted by the time that came out. And we'll come back to that book in a second because um, it is a magnum opus. For- and I was sitting, I remember I was sitting up at King's Cross in a pub. I met my publisher, Jane, for a drink. And uh, she was going, you know, look at you, you poor old sausage, you're exhausted. What do you want to do now? And I said, oh, I don't know. And then she um, she was like, how would you like to do a book about marijuana? And at that point, all my lights you know, blazed <laughs> on. And I said, so to speak. Give me the contract now. And, um, and yeah, they, they, they paid me to travel around the country smoking dope and writing about it. And uh, there was a clause in my contract that if I got busted, they were going to cover those costs. I did try to get them to nominate an intern to do any jail time for me, but... Uh, Balked at that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was good fun. It's a fun book. Mm. But after Leviathan, the unauthorized biography of Sydney, which I know won History Book of the Year that year. Yeah, two thousand two thousand two. I learned so much about Sydney reading that book, and what I find fascinating about it, one of the things anyway is that it's a biography of Sydney, not a history of Sydney, so it's all got a very personal view. And we're about, like, how many pages in? 30 pages in before we're even in Sydney. Yeah, we're, yeah, it's we're, we're Vietnamese yeah. refugees trying yeah. to get on their boat to Australia yeah, before it, we get there. And to me, that makes the point, and you use that to make the point, that Sydney is very much the city of migrants. Hmm. I'm tempted to say everyone interesting in Sydney actually comes from somewhere else, but... I remember interviewing a guy who'd escaped uh, the German death camps um, and ended up in Sydney. And he was just some, you know, he was just a, a punter in Sydney. And, you know, I'd, I'd come from talking to some others, like a Vietnamese colonel who'd escaped with his family. And and I sort of, 
I just I had this sort of moment of clarity where I sort of looked around and just thought, fuck, this city is full of stories like this. Um, and, and it really is. And that's what I think, for people who haven't read it, do so. It, it is a book full of stories about the people of Sydney, hmm. which therefore tells you the story of the city itself. Yeah, I would. I'd like to go back and redo it again, but I know I'm never going to do that because I, I don't live there anymore. And you really do need to be, like, you know, in, in, embedded and invested in a place to to do a book like that. Well, I mean, you were doing things like sitting in the back of cop cars on patrol in the yeah, quarry yeah. fields and yeah, actually seeing those uh, yep. working class riots on a Friday night. Yep, in full. In full swing. Yeah, yeah, that um, yeah, they, they, they were good. Those cops, and I, that actually, that was a part of the book I had to edit and redact quite heavily because um, uh, it would have cost a few of them their careers if I'd, I'd gone with my original copy. Not because they'd done anything wrong, just because they told the truth. And you know, just telling the truth is a dangerous business for a copper in Sydney. So, <sighs> to end with. Alien side boob, mm. two columns a week, subscribers only. Yeah, filth. Yeah, terrible imagery. Yeah, I mean, you once called me your inappropriate muse because I suggested tentacle porn yeah. as the answer to something. This goes way beyond that. Yeah, it does. It's uh, I, I just um, look. There's partly a very practical reason for me doing it, which is that you know uh, I, I get some of my income still from the mainstream media, and I don't really expect that to continue. You know, forever. Um, that business model is in a lot of trouble. Um, so it has to be replaced by other lines of business. And, and the idea, you know, I've been writing for a long time. I've got people who, you know, very, very generously are willing to support me in that writing. So I'm, I'm happy to, to do it for them. Um, but also, I just... Can I ask how it's doing? Alien side boob? How many? Because it's, it's, it's what? It's, it's it, what, three bucks It's good. I've, I've stopped driving subscriptions because... One of the things I've found is it's really fucking hard work. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's so those people running magazines might have been right that running yeah. subscriptions is hard work. Oh, no, not the I mean, the, the problem with subscriptions, and it, it's, it's just a, it's a structural problem, is that every year a third of um, the credit cards that are, like, you know, supporting you expire. Mm. And when they expire, the subscription expires with them. So... Um, you need to be constantly sort of chasing up expired credit cards. And quite frankly, I don't want to do that. It's undignified. I don't know that I'll keep doing it into the medium term, though, simply because it's really hard work. Um, you know, people people are paying me directly, and I feel very heavily the responsibility of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote my last one. Well, actually, no, I published one the day. So I wrote my second last one with fucking 20 stitches in my head and you know, an awful lot of fucking painkillers on board after having this thing cut out the back of my skull. Uh, because This is the thing with the tentacles. Yeah, yeah. And people are paying me. So, you know, tentacles or not, i got to write. Um, but also, I, you know, I, I still see myself primarily as a book writer and books are what I love to do. And these columns are such hard work to do properly that it is actually detracting from my ability to get all the books done creating those luscious word pictures of just how foul and disgusting an individual or an act is yeah as a writer who writes short form stuff that's that takes ages to get right right it's not unusual for me to spend three hours on the opening paragraph Uh, 
and, and once they get the opening paragraph, it tends to run pretty quickly. Um, but uh, that opening par is is important, and it's and, and you know it's it's it becomes increasingly difficult to think of you know new ways to um, top Chauncey Blundercunt as a, a way to <laughs> describe um, Malcolm Turnbull, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, occasionally I'll come up with a, a, a new line. I think, oh, that's really good. But it's been two hours went into it, like two hours uh, into a line. And, um, you know, in two hours I can write 1,500 words on a novel. So I, I'm going to have to I'll, – I'll, I'll have a look again around about October, November because in January all of the yearly subscriptions come due. Um and I'll sort of, you know, I'll give people plenty of notice. If I, if I get to the point where I just think, you know, I really should just be concentrating on my books, then I'll, I'll make sure everyone knows well before that I'm going to wrap it up. Um, but to do them properly, that's a lot of work. And to finish, a final question. You are now Tsar of Australia. Hmm. What, are, what are your first couple of actions? Uh, a proclamation uh, declaring that it's GIF, not GIF. <laughs> and um, yeah, what else? Um, the outlawing of beetroot on hamburgers. Oh, Jesus. Yep. You people elected me, dictator, and now you can live with it. John Birmingham. While personally I do not look forward to your beetroot-free hamburger future, thank you so much. Cheers, Gov. That interview with John Birmingham was recorded on Monday, the 4th of June, 2018, in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, Thanks, as always, to you, the listener, for your support. Special thanks this episode to Peter Leverdink, Paul McElwee, Keith Duddy, Simon Harris, Carl Oscar, Jono Ferguson, Katrina Zetti, which I always pronounce incorrectly, and an anonymous benefactor, plus, of course, all the regulars. If you'd like to throw a few dollars into the tip jar, please feel free to head over to stilgarian.com slash tip and do the right thing. That's stilgarian.com slash tip. The next episode of this podcast will appear uh, whenever I get around to it. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Have a good one. The 9pm Probe is a Skank Media production. Sorry.